the light of the world. We're going to talk a lot about claims this morning. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I think our culture is generally quite skeptical about people who make really big claims. We're well-educated, we're a well-informed culture, or at least we like to think of ourselves that way. We're constantly getting a whole lot of messages thrown at us all the time. So when we hear a claim of significance, I think we will automatically expect some sort of proof or some sort of supporting evidence if we're expected to place any kind of trust in that claim. From time to time, I've had to remind people in my own household of this, right? You'll be out the back, and I've got two sons. They're naturally a little bit sporty and competitive, and they'll say things like, I'm the fastest runner in the world. I'm the best, Emily doubts that statement, right? I'm the best batter in the world. I'm the best basketball player in the world. They kind of back themselves, right? At which point, I normally gently remind them of the fact that if you're going to make those sorts of claims about yourself, you've got to be confident that you can back it up, okay? Because people will expect you to show that it's true if they're going to place any sort of trust in that claim. Perhaps unsurprisingly, most, some of the most common objections to Jesus relate to claims that he made about himself. He made claims about his divinity. He made claims about his ability to forgive sins. He made claims about his position and authority as judge. And when today's society is faced with those claims, the inevitable response is, well, prove it. Why should I place any sort of trust in those claims? Well, in this morning's passage, we get what's probably one of the biggest claims that Jesus makes. And I say it's one of the biggest claims because so many of his other claims are wrapped up in the truth that he declares here in John chapter 8, verse 12 where he boldly declares before people in the midst of the temple courts, in the feast of the tabernacles, and he says to them, I am the light of the world. So today we're going to camp out a little bit on that concept. And we're going to really try and unpack what it means for Jesus to claim to be the light of the world. And we're going to do that by looking at three different components to that claim. We're going to start slow, but we'll build momentum as we go through. The first one, we're going to look at the claim itself in verse 12. What does it mean when Jesus says, I am the light of the world? In verse 13, we're going to look at the objection to that claim. Is it true? Is it valid? And then in the last section, when we look at verses 14 to 20, we're going to look at the authority behind that claim. How can he make that sort of claim about himself? Because you see, behind each of these elements of the claim, we see really important truths that we are to take to heart if we are to fully appreciate and know who Jesus really is, the one and only light of the world. Because what we see as we go through today's passage is that until we know Jesus as the light of the world, he says we don't really know him at all. So we're going to work through this together this morning. Starting off of verse 12, right? What is this claim? What does he mean when he says he's the light of the world? Well, where is Jesus when he's saying this? Let's start here. Let's get our bearings around where we're at. Jesus is still in the midst of the temple courts in the Feast of the Tabernacles, as we've been talking about for a number of weeks. 
He's, because he's in the temple courts, he's got most probably a Jewish audience, but not exclusively a Jewish audience. Certainly, there are a whole lot of temple authority figures, if you like. There are Pharisees there, there are teachers of the law, there are people who are authority figures amongst the Jewish people. They are all there in the audience. Now, one thing that's become clear as we've worked through this idea, or we've worked through what's unfolded in the Feast of the Tabernacles this time around, is that public opinion over Jesus is clearly quite divided. In chapter 7, verse 40 to 41, it says, Some have said, he's a prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. They had their head in that kind of space. But then others said, well, as if the Messiah comes from Galilee. This can't be the person. There are different camps that are forming. Public opinion is becoming divided about who Jesus really is. I'm sure most of you will agree, though, that today people still can't reach a consensus on Jesus, can they? There is today, there are different camps, all sorts of different camps, about who Jesus really is. Some say a significant historical figure. Others will say a, an influential teacher. Some will say he's a really good person to be on good terms with. Some will say he's the person that gets thrown around in religious circles. He's the name that keeps coming up in my kids' Bible stories. He's the person talked about in church, but not in a lot of other spaces. So who is he? Who is Jesus to you? In verse 12, the first verse of today's passage, Jesus tells us exactly who he is. It says this, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in seeking to proclaim the truth about who Jesus really is, why does he use this language? Why does he call himself the light of the world? Now, a couple of weeks ago, Nathan has been unpacking a lot of the background behind the Feast of the Tabernacles. And one of the things he may have, may not have picked up as we've gone through it is he mentioned that there were two really significant emblems or symbols that were powerful symbols during the Feast of the Tabernacles. Water and light. Now, Jesus referred to the water aspect when he said, Those who believe in me, you will receive rivers of living water that will provide satisfaction and nourishment for your soul. Well, now he's moving to the second of those symbols. He's touching on light. See, during this feast, there were a number of ceremonies that actually remembered the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness during the time of when the tabernacle was being established. You may or may not recall, when Israel was set free from Egypt, they were given a pillar of, uh, sorry, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that pillar of fire was to lead them during times of darkness through the wilderness to the land that God had ultimately promised them. And there were a lot of ceremonies that were symbolic of this point in their history. One commentator said, for example, that they would light up two chandeliers full of candles in the temple courts and they would lift it up so that it would light the surrounding areas and people would dance under the candlelight and celebrate what God had done. Now Jesus is taking that sort of rich symbolism about such a significant point in Israel's history and he's applying it directly to himself. As if to say... 
Your time of following a pillar of fire in the wilderness has come to an end. Now it's time to follow me. And if you follow me, you won't walk through the dark wilderness anymore. If you, if you follow me, you will find life. I wonder if you have ever felt like you're stuck in the dark wilderness, needing a light. I think we each know that when we look deep inside our heart, we see a lot of darkness there. We see a lot of hidden places that we don't really want to have exposed. We see a lot of dark things which we perhaps aren't all that comfortable talking about. Some of you might even be a season right now where you feel trapped. Trapped in dark attitudes. Trapped in dark circumstances. Trapped in dark thinking. Trapped in dark actions. If you're not in one of those seasons, you will be again soon. (laughs) In fact, the Bible recognizes that there is darkness in all of us. Romans 3.10, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. Each of our starting points is darkness, which is why we all need God to do a work in our lives and importantly in our hearts so that he can invade that darkness with light. And it's against that dark backdrop that Jesus gives us hope by saying that just like he sent a pillar of fire to his people in those days in the Old Testament, now he is sending me as your light. I am the one who will pull you out of the darkness of your sin and I will give you a light that is eternal life. And I love the way Jesus describes himself here as the light of the world. Because the pillar of fire was for a particular nation at a particular point in time, wasn't it? But Jesus is saying, now I am the light that is, that is there for all nations, for every tribe and tongue. Whether you're here in Australia, whether you're in Pekinbaru, Indonesia, wherever you are, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, it's not that his light will be experienced by everyone. Don't read that into what's being said here. Because not everyone we know will believe in him. But it's a light that is offered to everyone for those who will believe. And we know that there is a time coming when the whole world will be filled with his glorious light, isn't there? There is a time when he will come again and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is why Jesus then, he follows his claim with an invitation. He says, follow me and you will have the light of life. Now this idea of following him, it's don't, it doesn't have that image of just tagging along, or tagging along behind someone as they go on their own journey. It's actually the idea of journeying alongside each other through the highs and lows of life. I love the way it was described in the prayer before about following his pathway, where that's rocky, wherever it leads, through the twists and turns of life. Jesus is saying, if you follow me in those times, you won't walk in darkness anymore but you will have the light of life that comes with a personal knowledge 
and relationship with your creator God. I wonder what your choices and actions reveal about who you are following right now. It's very easy to follow our own predetermined pathway through life, isn't it? But that pathway won't lead to life. It's very easy to follow the pathway that is set by our own temptations and desires. But that pathway is not the one that leads to life. It's very easy to follow a pathway that's set by our own ambitions for our life, the things that we want to do and achieve. But that pathway will never lead to life. Jesus says, follow me. And you won't walk in darkness anymore. You will have the light of life. I will open the eyes of your heart to God. I will shine light into your soul and I will lead you to a life that is lived with your creator God. What is this claim that Jesus is making? You can see here that he's the light of the world. He invites us to follow him. There's not just a claim in this verse, there's an invitation. An invitation to follow. And when we follow him, he says we move out of our darkness and we are captured by his light. But right after we get this claim, it's immediately followed in the next verse with an objection. In verse 13 it says, So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true, or your testimony is not valid. Now the religious authorities clearly saw Jesus as a threat to their own authority. They saw him as a person who was simply leading their people astray. So straight away, they challenge or object to his claim by arguing that Jesus' testimony was not valid because it wasn't supported by any external or outside authority. The Pharisees couldn't disprove Jesus' claim, so it's like they shift the onus of proof onto him. You give us evidence that your testimony is true without it, We don't see that it's valid. But we've already heard the answer to these objections earlier in the Gospel of John. You go all the way back to the very first chapter. He makes a point, including in the very first chapter of this whole Gospel, in verse 6 and 7, he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. Then in chapter 5, Jesus unpacks it more in verses 31 to 40, where he says, if you want witnesses, then you have what John the Baptist has said, you've got all of my signs and wonders, and you have God himself who testified to the truth of what I'm saying. You can ask John the Baptist, you can observe my signs and wonders, you can ask God himself. All three of those things testify to the fact that I'm exactly who I said I am. In verse 31 and 32 of chapter 5, he says, If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, but there's another one who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Now this is the point, isn't it? It doesn't matter what external evidence Jesus provided. 
It didn't matter what witnesses were ever going to testify to the truth of his testimony because the religious authorities of the day were blinded by their own rejection of him. They were stuck in the darkness caused by the hardness of their hearts. It had nothing to do with Jesus' testimony being invalid. It had everything to do with their unwillingness to accept that testimony and accept Jesus for who he really was and is. And the devastating truth is that like Jesus was a rejected saviour back then, He's still a rejected saviour today, isn't he? Like the Pharisees said, prove it. So much of society today looks at Jesus and says, prove it. Like the Pharisees questioned and challenged his, uh, what he said, in the same way so many people today question and challenge the truth of what Jesus says. Like the Pharisees refused to submit themselves under his authority in the same way so many of us today refuse to submit ourselves under his authority. But here's what we need to remember, right? That the rejection of Jesus' claim will never change the truth of that claim. We can object to him being the light, but it doesn't change the truth that he is the light. We can object to him being saviour, right? But it doesn't change the truth that he is our saviour. We can object to him being Lord, but it doesn't change the truth that he is Lord and that the time is coming when he will be revealed in full. And at that, that time, there will be no more questions about the validity of what he was saying. It will be there for all to see that Jesus Christ is the Lord who reigns at the right hand of God. And there, at that time, there will only be the devastation that not everyone who heard those words were willing to accept it. This is the truth that rings through in this section here. That Jesus is the light, whether we accept it or not. How might you need to stop questioning, debating, or rejecting Jesus instead of accepting him for who he really is? See, Jesus didn't come to argue with us. He didn't come to force himself on us. He didn't come to overpower or dominate us. He simply came to offer us life. He came to offer us hope. We can get so caught up questioning who he was, analyzing who he was, debating who he was, rather than simply believing who he was. In verse 24 of this same chapter, you just travel a little bit further down the text. It says, If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That is a stark statement that he says in this same chapter. But we know that if we do believe in him, if we hand our lives over to him, we know from John 3.16 that we won't die in our sins. We will have the life of light. Isn't it time we stopped analyzing, debating, and questioning Jesus and just started believing in him? as the light of the world. 
So we've heard he's the light of the world who invites us to follow him. And we've heard that he is the light of the world, whether we accept that as truth or not. Jesus then turns the authority behind this statement. How is it that he can claim to be exactly who he's claiming to be? In verse 14, Jesus says, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. In other words, even if I didn't have the witnesses that I'm telling you that I have, it is still true what I'm saying because of the origin of what I'm saying. It's the origin of what I'm saying that makes it true. So what is the origin of what he is saying? Well, he states it more explicitly in the next verses, 15 to 18. He says, you judge by human standards. And we'll come back to that point in a second. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Now you can see where Jesus is going here with what he's saying, can't you? I came from the Father. I was sent by the Father. When my time has come, I will return to the Father. God himself stands behind and validates everything that I'm saying. That is where my authority comes from. And this is how Jesus can in fact claim to be the light of the world, because what do we know about God? We read in 1 John 1.5, it says, God is light. In him, there is no darkness. So the only reason Jesus can claim to be light is because he is sent by and is and stands beside the God who is light himself, the Father. That is where his authority comes from. But the Pharisees can't see it because they are judging by human standards. What does that mean? Well, it means in their eyes, they didn't see the light of the world. They saw the son of a carpenter. They saw a man with no formal religious training. They saw a man with no traditional rabbinic authority. They saw a person who was just challenging their prevailing teachings of the day. They saw an apparent mismatch between him and the kind of Messiah they were expecting. Because they judged by human standards, their judgment was wrong. The Bible tells us very clearly that the gospel never makes sense when we look at it through human standards, when we look at it with worldly wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21 to 24, there's a few verses here, but I think they're really important to what's going on. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Jews demanded signs, Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews 
and Greeks, both Australians and Indonesians, you can add whatever nation you want there, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, when we look at Jesus through worldly wisdom, through human standards, we will miss who he really is because it will seem like foolishness. But when we allow ourselves to look at Jesus through the lens of faith, we can see a Jesus who is speaking to us with the authority of God. And not just a Jesus who speaks down on us, like a teacher might speak down on a student, but a Jesus who went that extra step to demonstrate the truth of what he was saying by what he did. By the fact that he was willing to take himself all the way to the cross and be brutally executed on our behalf so that all those who believed in him might not die in their sins, but would have the light of life. That's the gospel. It's foolishness when you look at it through human standards, but it is the power of God for those who believe. Our death placed on Jesus on the cross so that his life might be granted to us. Because Jesus took our death upon himself. Are you judging Jesus with human standards? Or are you believing in him as the one who has the authority of God himself? You know, some of us may have been of the mindset for quite some time that Christianity is just foolishness, that it doesn't make sense, that it's irrelevant, that it's outdated. Can I encourage you to think that through really carefully and ask yourself maybe whether God wants you to be start considering Jesus and Christianity just a little bit differently? Not viewing Jesus as the one who misleads, but as truth. Not viewing Jesus as the one who just digs ourselves out of trouble, but the one who is God. Not viewing Jesus as the one we just need to stay on the right side of, but as God. Not as one who just is intended to make our life better, but as the one through whom we can experience true life. What is your view of Jesus this morning? And what does that view of Jesus mean for the way we live? What does it mean for whom we are going to choose to follow? You see, Jesus is the light of the world who was sent by God with the authority of God. Then having journeyed through that, right, the Pharisees then end with this really cutting comment in verse 19. Jesus just said, I was sent from my father. I'm from my father. I'm going to return to my father. And then in verse 19, the Pharisees say, well, where is your father? This reads like an intentional jab at Jesus, referring either to the simplicity of his upbringing with Mary and Joseph or even the controversy that may have been surrounding the circumstances that related to the virgin birth with Mary. One commentator said that to question a man's paternity in that culture was to place a slur on his legitimacy. And that's exactly what you can see the Pharisees trying to do, constantly question and undermine the legitimacy of Jesus. 
But look at how Jesus responds in verse 19 and 20. It says, You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Remember, the Pharisees prided themselves on their knowledge of God. Their whole position and status amongst their community stemmed from their knowledge of the scriptures, their ability to articulate things of God to the people. But Jesus says to them, you don't know me. And because you don't know me, you don't know God. You religious people don't know God. That's what he's saying. What a stark reminder that a knowledge about God will never replace knowing God himself. We can go through all the religious motions in the world. We can be fanatical about our Bible and reading and understanding it. We can join every small group under the sun. We can attend three, four, five church services a week if you want. We can serve faithfully in this church for years. All those things are great. But it doesn't mean we know him. It doesn't mean we know him. If we want to know Jesus, then we need to know and believe in who he really is. You see, the truth is that Jesus doesn't make claims. Jesus declares truth. And the truth he declared about himself was that I am the light of the world. He's the light of the world who invites us to follow him. He is that light whether we accept it or not. And he is the light because he was sent with the authority of the living God. And if we don't know Jesus in that way, then we don't know Jesus at all. But Jesus says that if you do know me, if you do believe on me as the light you will never walk in darkness again. But you will have the light of life. My prayer is that everyone in this church and collectively as a church, we will know Jesus like that. We won't just know about him. We won't just know facts and Bible verses and head knowledge. We will know him as our light, as our saviour, as the only one who can save and as the one we desperately want to follow because we know that any other pathway doesn't lead to life. His pathway is the only one that leads us to the light of life. And in following that road, all of a sudden we can come to know Jesus for who he really is. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you send Jesus with your full authority and you sent him to be our light, that we might not die in our sins, but we might believe in him and experience a light of life. Lord, we thank you that that light is for the world. 
every nation, every tribe, every community, every workplace, every university, every school, Lord, you are the light that offers hope and salvation in an otherwise dark world. Lord, we pray that we will want to know you as you really are, that you are light. We pray that that light will inspire us to share that light with others so that they too might understand the darkness that it is without your heavenly light. And we pray for Em and Dan again as they continue to take that, they are taking that step to take that light into an entirely different country. Lord, we pray your protection over them that they will know you first and foremost and that that knowledge of you will drive their passion to make you known to those around them. And may we as a church journey with them in that. But Lord, may we each own that mission of knowing you as a light and making you known as a light so that those around us might not dwell in darkness anymore but might realize there's an alternative and might realize that there's actually no alternative other than you which offers hope and a future. And Lord, we pray this in your name as a church. We all said, Amen.